0: I'm Freddie Mabitella and welcome to Alibi. This is a show that's going to investigate the case of a single man over eight episodes. A man who has been convicted to life in prison and claims to be innocent after all these years. Honestly, I have a different feel for people who are in prison. Paul McNally is a journalist who works with the Vitz Justice Project in Johannesburg. And he says that he's found someone and this guy Might be innocent.
1: I will just say that he has a fighting chance. His name is Anthony De Vries. He's from a suburb just outside Joburg called Ennerdale. He fixed cars and worked with his hands, but now he's greying a little. And really, he has spent most of his life inside prison.
0: And I'm quite sure you get a lot of such cases where people write letters to the Vits Justice Project and they're seeking help and they're all claiming their innocence.
1: Yeah, we get a lot of these letters. We get about six to ten of them every week. Run me through the letters
0: that you receive and the different stories that you've probably encountered and then maybe we could get to why in particular you chose this story.
2: This one is, um, okay, I'm gonna be quoting. I am a
1: 28-year-old male serving life imprisonment of murder I didn't commit. This is Marvin Adams. He's the journalism intern at Justice Project. And one of his jobs is to go through letters from inmates.
0: So this is a letter
2: we, this guy has been writing to us since I think a year ago. And he says the DNA evidence can be challenged.
1: We're a group of journalists who look at miscarriages of justice, torture, and wrongful conviction. We're based in Wits University in Johannesburg, and we mix journalism and advocacy to investigate stories where the justice system is potentially broken. The doctor's cross-examination
2: was not given in court and any other forensics experts were not present during the trial date.
1: Marvin has a stack of letters with him, and these are only from this week. He picks up another at random. And he's saying he just didn't commit this murder, but he was convicted for this murder. In theory, each one of these letters represents a case that we could do instead of Anthony. It represents another wrongful conviction that we could pursue instead.
0: That means you've heard a lot of endorsements that probably sound like Anthony's many times. (laughs) But people are like, I'm innocent, and there's nothing wrong with what I did. So you're quite familiar with uh, this kind of story, or someone providing their alibi, and you being able to tell, yeah, by gut feel if they're right, uh, if they're a little too suspicious.
1: So there were actually several steps to me meeting Anthony DeFreese and it started with a colleague from Justice Project. She introduced me to a woman called Melanie Smith, and I went to go meet Melanie down at her house in Ennerdale, which is just outside of Johannesburg. I went down to Ennerdale in my tiny black Ford. I went on the freeway and drove right up to Melanie's house, and she was so warm to me. I'd never met her before, and she gave me this huge hug, And immediately she started showing me around her house and pointing out things that were up on the wall. Up on the mantle, Melanie shows me her wedding photo. It's a close-up of her and her husband kissing. His name is Llewellyn and he's in a gray suit. My mom framed it for our first anniversary. You would never guess this from looking at the photo that Melanie and Llewellyn were married while Llewellyn was still in jail.
0: So my, my family were there, his family were there, and we had a couple of friends of ours. So it was actually very, very nice. And we were supposed to get married in Baviansburg, but then he got transferred from there. But luckily the people were very nice and when going in and they arranged everything for us.
1: Llewellyn held up three cigarette trucks while in his early 20s. And for this, he was sentenced to 33 years.
0: It's, it's very difficult sometimes, Paul, but... Like I say, when you, when you love someone and you know that that person is a good person, regardless of what they've done, do you understand what I'm saying? Because we all make mistakes and we all learn from them.
1: When I ask Melanie if Llewellyn is innocent, she says, of course not. She says he deserves to have been convicted. She sticks to the fact that her husband is guilty of his crimes and should serve out his sentence. Was he with a group of guys? I was with a group of guys. Are they, do they live around right here? All from here. Did they all go to jail as well? Yes,
0: all, all of them. I'm sure I told them if they come home and this shit happens again, they did. Mm. I would personally kill them. I still don't get how this is gonna lead us to Anthony.
1: Llewellyn, the guy in the grey suit in the wedding photo, the one kissing Melanie, he's the guy who directs me to Anthony DeVries. Through Melanie. She's very harsh on her husband. And she tells me so earnestly that I need to contact this guy, Anthony. You need to speak to this guy, she tells me.
0: So it was all up to the energy that Melanie had put into how she endorses Anthony.
1: Well, I think what did it was that we had this wife and husband team, one of them inside jail and the other outside jail, and they had both discussed and decided that Anthony DeVries was someone that they both endorsed. The way Melanie described it was that Anthony was more innocent than the rest.
0: All right. So now do we get to meet the man?
1: The next step is definitely to give Anthony DeVries a call. Hi, Anthony, how are you? Uh,
2: excellent,
1: sir, is, is now an okay time? Should I call you back later? Now it's okay, you can talk, boss. I feel nervous speaking to Anthony. He's speaking to me on the phone from Boxburg Correctional Center. And I'd just like to say that on this first phone call to Anthony, I have no knowledge of his case. I only know how long he's been inside. 17 years. And how insistent he is that he shouldn't have ever been put there.
2: You see what is the thing it's because I was sentenced about how much I can say 17 years ago. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. You yeah, I'm here. Yeah, so I was sentenced 17 years ago and since I've tried everything in my power to get things straightened out but at the time I ended up giving up hope to get justice the straight way and I just decided to say that I'll do my sentence. Because what I'm doing, I'm doing
1: life. No? As you can hear, Anthony is a clear-spoken middle-aged man. He sounds how you hope a man will sound when chasing a wrongful conviction. And, and the crime itself, was it an armed... What did they hold up, these guys? What did they... It was, rob? it was
2: armed robbery. Where in the armed robbery, there was two, two murders. Okay, wow. And,
1: and, what, and, who, and what did they rob? Who did they rob?
2: It was a Fidelity card friend it was
1: robbed. Fidelity is a cash-in-transit company, so think of guys with guns collecting and depositing huge sums of money.
2: Two of the guys working for Fidelity cards was killed in in, in the armed robbery.
1: I am totally stunned by the violence of this crime.
0: I feel like this is a, a scene from a movie that's been described here by Anthony and his lack of connection to the scene makes me feel like it's someone who's describing a story that's no way related to him
1: on the 28th of march 1994 okay just a few weeks before south africa's first democratic election it's 9 a.m in the morning a group of six men actually that number varies depending on the witness but they are all armed and they're in a white backing and they drive into a checkers in Wernigang. That's like a shopping center for kids and families. People are there doing their weekly shops. Now, the Baki drives through the parking lot right up to the front of the center where the shops are.
0: You know, it's nine in the morning. I'm quite sure there were a lot of witnesses which could have made this a very simple, easy to spot case to say, no, we've seen that guy, eyewitnesses, and uh, what's not to just really pin down these guys
1: well that is something we're going to get into for sure in later episodes the truth is there were a lot of shoppers there and that means potentially a lot of witnesses so this gang holds up two security guards with ak-47s and shoots them dead the police soon arrive at the checkers and what they see is a complete bloodbath there are two grown white men with their faces blown
0: off. Sounds like a very gruesome scene.
3: You know, the police were in an extremely awkward situation in the period just before and after 94.
1: This is Johan Berger. He's a senior researcher at the Institute of Security Studies in Pretoria. He says that at this time, in 1994, the South African police were struggling with all the changes that the country was going through.
3: These changes happened very, very quickly. You know, uh, for both the police and the military, I mean, who were fighting an, an, a prolonged or protracted war against an insurgency as it was seen at the time. Suddenly, the politicians were talking to these insurgents.
1: This immense pressure that the police were under would have made them pretty eager to find a suspect quickly especially for a crime like the murder of two white security guards. In 1994, this kind of heist cash-in-transit crime was excessively violent and quite unusual.
3: There was a lot of fear amongst, or concerns, perhaps a better word, amongst uh, police officers at the time about how this might affect them, because everyone understood that if there's a negotiated settlement, that, um, that a, an ANC government would probably take over because of the majority support, and um, and and there was lots of concerns amongst police officers already during that period before 1994
0: that this uh, or how this could affect them. So now, give me more details about Anthony and this case.
1: Another reason why we should be following Anthony's case is that he has his paperwork. And this is so rare with people claiming to be wrongfully convicted. If you think back to those letters at the beginning of the episode that Marvin was going through, so few of those come with legitimate paperwork. It's just their story but Antony has all his paperwork. And this means that he's willing for us to scrutinize his story. Not just what he says, not just his side of the story, but also what was said in court and what has been said by others about him.
2: But what I'll do, I will, I don't know how we will do it. Uh, giving you these uh, documents, etc., my case files and all those things, because I've got everything in my possession. So we can just make arrangements and I can hand those things over to you.
1: Okay, okay.
2: I will send the things either with my brother or so then you can arrange with him to get everything.
1: Anthony is serving life and he was convicted on a number of charges. First of all, the murder of two security guards. Second, robbery. One hundred and thirty thousand rand in cash was stolen that day at the checkers and third he was convicted of two charges of attempted murder now these attempted murder charges we are going to get into in a later episode and how they come about is insane
0: at the scene at this moment there's police officers arriving and we have them investigating at the checkers and where is Antony at that moment?
1: Well, Antony claims he had nothing to do with this crime.
0: OK, but now, what's his alibi? What story is he providing? Where was he if he wasn't at
1: the checkers? He actually says that he was hitchhiking his way to a job interview for a pipe-fitting job.
2: You see what happened is, on, the, on that specific day, actually I, I got love by a few guys with the party, because I was hitchhiking from the... on the for for innocent
1: road. So Anthony says before he reaches this interview, he was hit on the head, he was mugged, he was left bleeding and disorientated. And actually this is his alibi, the fact that he was attacked. And unfortunately, the alibi also leaves him just a few kilometers away from the place of the murders.
2: Those guys on the party, what happened that day? I was robbed and I was assaulted.
1: When he was wandering around, disorientated, covered in blood, he saw police officers in the felt. And he actually walked up to them and asked them for help. But instead of helping him, the police replied by rounding him up as a suspect to the murders.
0: Okay, so that's Anthony's alibi. He says he was not at the scene. He was on his way to a job interview elsewhere and he is also a victim of a crime.
1: Then Anthony hands me a kicker that begins to emotionally suck me in. It's a story about what happened to him years before his arrest. When he was a teenager in high school, the police came to his house. And this was in the late 80s, remember, during apartheid.
2: Those days, what, they came there and they were looking for my brother. My brother was, they were looking for my, my elder brother. Uh, Selwyn. As they were looking for him, they didn't
1: find him at home and they took me. At the time, the police were hunting for his brother Selwyn. Now, Anthony has told me that Selwyn had political leanings. And as
2: they were searching the house, they found some political documents and, and things like that also in the house. And that was when they arrested me and they took me.
1: They were looking for Selwyn because he was anti-apartheid, because he was against the government. And when they failed to find Selwyn, they took Anthony instead.
2: It was 1989, 1990, that period when they took me. It was a whole range of policemen that was actually because they took me from Transcai. They- They assaulted me, they took me to East London.
1: Anthony was tortured by a gang of apartheid policemen for three weeks. They actually took him all the way to Durban and they kept him in the back of their van as their plaything.
2: And all that way it was like assault. And then they brought me back to Brixton murder and robbery where they tortured me. And it was maybe something like a three week ordeal that I had with them.
1: A three week ordeal,
2: yes, it was for, for about three weeks that I was with them, and they were torturing me, assaulting me up and down. My family was running up and down looking for me
1: because it was during apartheid, right, so do you feel that they it was a sort of a racially motivated attack? no, it was
2: it was it
1: was this story from Anthony about how he was tortured by the police in high school it scandalized me. I felt sorry for him. The violence meant he couldn't concentrate while he was at school, so he dropped out. He never finished high school as a result. It completely destroyed his life.
2: They arrested me in, I was staying in Transcai and they tortured me. There was a case of, I even made a case of, for torturing me.
1: So Anthony laid torture charges against the police. It was a gang of police officers who tortured him, but Anthony singled out one as a kind of ringleader. Warrant Officer Jacques Marraire. Now, we're going to search for a response from Marraire and the other police officers in a later episode. The torture charges that Anthony brought against the police stuck, and he was awarded an out-of-court settlement of 35,000 rand. That was a lot of money back in the day. His settlement was awarded by Adrian Flock, who at the time was the Minister of Law and Order and would go on to become the Minister of correctional services. However, the police officers, including the one that Anthony had singled out, Jacques Marais, went free. In fact, they all remained working in the police.
0: How has that changed your thinking of Anthony's innocence?
1: He's been a victim in his life, and I know that, and I can't let it cloud my judgment about a crime that he might have committed years later.
0: So on the day of the murder, two security guards are gone down. But on the other hand, Anthony, at the very same instance, is hitchhiking to a job interview and gets mugged.
1: Right, that's exactly what happened. So he's mugged, and this means he gets covered in blood. He's then kicked out of the vehicle that he's in, and he sort of scampers away. He sees a policeman in the felt, and he runs up towards him.
2: When I saw... Police in the area I went to that police when I went to them for help, they arrested me, and they took me to the
0: scene so this man was looking for help, trying to say, "Okay, safe haven, here are the police. Let me tell them you know the crime that has just been committed against me. Now, you know what, looking at the history that he has with police officers, this is a guy who should be hating the police. I don't get why he would voluntarily run towards the police,
1: yeah a good point i don't know i mean he was so anti the police he actually carried around a letter with him at all times from lawyers for human rights saying that he must never be interviewed by the police without a lawyer present this was because of his past this was because he'd been tortured while in high school and then to run to the police for help seems a little dubious the time
2: when they When they arrested me, they knew me immediately because we knew each other. Yeah, they knew me from before due to the cases that I had previously against murder and robbery.
1: Anthony claims the police, when they found him in the felt, recognized him immediately. And not for the reasons that you might expect. Instead of helping him, because remember, he's covered in blood at this point, they revel in the coincidence of who they found. They have found Antony de Vries. They take Antony to the investigating officer, who is busy commanding the
2: scene. To him. Look who we who we've
1: got here. This is the second I realize that Antony's torture episode in Durban and the security guard murders are linked. And not just because they both involve the police, but Antony's torturer. In Durban, and the investigating officer for the security guard murders for which Anthony was convicted is the same guy. It's warrant officer Jacques Marais. It's the same guy just years later. Anthony is brought to the scene covered in blood and he stares his old torturer in the eye.
0: We discovered that Jacques Marais and Anthony have a violent history together.
1: It's a huge miscarriage of justice that this was never disclosed at trial, right? So Antony and Maria have got this history together and no one in court is ever told about it, even though there is evidence to show that Antony did tell his trial lawyer of the relationship.
2: It's like I just want to go on and live my life and put all this, this chapter, it's a part of my life that I just want to put behind me.
1: So so why did you agree to talk to me, did you think? You
2: see, the, the reason why I agreed to talk to you is, you know, I would, at the end of the day, knowing that how hard it was for me to, maybe, you see, actually it's, it's too good to believe that someone will actually get something right with this.
1: Anthony sounds broken. Like allowing this slight amount of hope to enter his voice is somehow painful for him. There's a pause on the phone and he thinks about what it would mean for me to investigate his case further. And then he says,
2: Actually, if everything can come out in the open, it would be a good thing for me to see that one day if maybe there is someone who can get through to say that, to show that those people were actually lying in court not to say that i want anything out of it or what just to expose to say that no these people they were actually lying and it can actually be proven that they were they were lying because you know these people they will go to the extreme
1: anthony had many lawyers over the years but the first lawyer that he contacted when he was arrested upon hearing anthony's alibi that he'd been mugged and hit on the head and all those things drafted a statement saying that Antony was not a suicide risk. And this was because his lawyer understood Antony's past and he had reason to fear the police and thought that they may murder Antony if he was left overnight in a cell. So if Antony was killed by the police, the claim the next day would be suicide. Now, a statement drafted by the lawyer was a warning shot to the police, saying, faking Antony's suicide is not an option.
0: I just want to know, Does Anthony have a family of his own?
1: He has a mother who's still alive. She lives down in Ennerdale where he grew up, and she is praying for him every day to be released. Anthony also has three children who were incredibly young when he went inside, and they have missed him their entire lives. His absence has had a profound effect on his children. His eldest daughter is 21 years old.
0: I still remain... You know, on my own views of the fact that, you know what, he is in prison. He's been convicted. Surely there's something he did wrong. And I'm still on the fence. I'm asking how you feel now about Antony's innocence.
1: I have to admit to you that I switch from guilty to innocent to guilty on this case every day, every hour.
0: I mean, the fact that he was mugged at the very same instance that the crime took place, triggered a sense of uh, he could be lying from my side.
1: Yeah, it's too clean. It's too convenient. It sounds made up. It's the kind of story you tell when you immediately have to think of something and you're kind of put on the spot.
0: What still makes you think that he could be innocent? at this point.
1: Okay, we're overlooking the fact that we have a possibility here of a revenge story. The same police officer, Jacques Marais, who was involved in torturing Anthony when he was in high school, later on became his investigating officer that ended up putting him in jail for most of his life. The fact that Antony pressed charges against Jacques Marais and won could have given him a motive. To frame Anthony, we have no idea what this kind of history could have done to the case. The investigating officer touches everything, and this means it brings everything in this case into question. I'm not saying that we know Jacques Moret acted differently because of his past with Antony, but my goodness... It definitely means we should pursue Antony's case, especially because this fact was never brought up at his trial. So where are we heading next? So I'm heading off to see Antony's brother Selwyn and collect his court records.
0: Is this the same brother Selwyn who the cops were looking for in the late 80s and couldn't find and instead found Antony, our guy, who got tortured?
1: Yeah, this is the same guy. Antony tells me his brother Selwyn was very political. Like he was deep involved in the struggle, fighting for the end of apartheid. And that's why the cops were looking for him on that fateful day when they took Antony instead. And really, I want to know if Selwyn feels responsible for his brother being tortured. And also, I wanna know what Selwyn thinks of this police officer, Jacques Marais.
0: You've been listening to Alibi. This is the show that will investigate a single criminal case over eight weeks. I'm Freddie Mabitella. Alibi is investigated, edited, produced and written by Paul McNally. It is brought to you by the Vits Radio Academy, Wits Justice Project and is part of the Citizen Justice Network. Editorial oversight is given by Franz Kruger and Nusheen Afani. Production oversight and music is composed by John Batman. Extra script editing and production is by Elna Schutz. Mixed by Gudrano Serahame. Additional editorial help by Gavin Haynes, Tom McNally, and Kyla Hemansen. We are based in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find our podcast on alibi.org.za or on iTunes. Join us next week for episode two of Alibi, the show that will investigate a single criminal case over eight weeks. Next week on Alibi, Paul visits Anthony's brother Selwyn and gets shown a few pictures of the crime scene.
1: What is, can you describe that? Is that him? That's him. Yeah. But where, what, where's, what's all the blood from? I mean, so he's, he's got, his face is covered in blood. Yeah. I don't know where it was hit by the cops. Is that one of the guys who was shot? He was shot. I don't like to look at pictures yeah. like that. Oh, this is not nice. Oh.